Welcome to The Dream Show. I'm Jane Theresa Anderson, and this is episode 268, 268. During 2023, we're departing from our usual podcast format to bring you the audio version of my most recent book, Birds of Paradise, subtitled Taming the Unconscious to Bring Your Dreams to Fruition. Today's episode is part three of the 10-part series. Each episode is standalone, but you will get maximum enjoyment if you begin with part one, which is episode 266. If you love the guest format, don't worry, it will return in late November 2023 when we've delivered all 10 episodes of Bird of Paradise. And remember, you can go back through every single episode of The Dream Show all the way back to our first episode in 2009 and listen to my conversations with our guests as we explore their dreams. You can do that at janetheresa.com. That's Teresa without an H. Publishing the audio version of Bird of Paradise through the podcast means there's no fee for you. But if you'd like to express your appreciation and enjoyment, I'd like to encourage you to buy the paperback version for yourself or as a gift for a friend or two. Thank you. If you've missed the previous episodes of Bird of Paradise, here's a quote from the back cover to give you an idea of what's in store for you as you listen. Bird of Paradise is an inspirational guide to finding your calling and navigating your life using dreams, mysteries and alchemy. It's part whimsical memoir, part healing balm and part alchemical guide. And it delivers my down-to-earth tools and techniques for decoding dreams and synchronicities as well as my unique signature alchemy practices that enable you to flow and grow with life's challenges, paradoxes and mysteries. So here we go, part three. Yesterday, today, tomorrow. Brunfelsia Bonodora. The sweet perfume pervades inner city Brisbane in spring. Follow your nose and you'll soon find the bush with its three different colours of flowers. The newest purple flower fades to lavender blue, then fades to white. Yet the white looks as new and as fresh a flower as the latest unfolding violet. Yesterday lives as freshly and headily beside today as does tomorrow. Deep Roots After living in Australia for more than half my life, I found myself back in England in 2017, standing in front of one of my childhood homes. Although I had revisited it a hundred times in my dreams over the decades, I hadn't made the physical trip to the south coast to trace those early years until now. My family had moved into this particular house when I was two and left when I was nine. It didn't look the same today as it did back then. It's been done up and transformed, which is probably for the best. Just a few houses past, it was a little triangle of grass that served as the meeting place for those of us who were big enough to be allowed to play beyond the second lamppost in the street. But this wasn't just any triangle of grass. 
Ours was special because of the acorns that always seemed to pile in abundance beneath the oak tree that stood there. I used to collect those acorns and make things from them. Fairy cups, I think. But most of all, I used to sit under the tree and contemplate the miracle of how a tiny acorn could become a huge oak. So imagine my surprise when I discovered that the triangle of grass and the oak tree were still there more than 50 years on. The tree was old and misshapen, but the acorns piled beneath it were as fresh and new and full of promise as the acorns of my youth had been. It's a bit of a cliche, the acorns growing into oak trees analogy, but it was deeply meaningful and encouraging to me as a small child. It represents a model that I suspect is firmly rooted, given my ability to plod through the millions of small steps it can take to grow big visions into reality. And the fairy cups are still there too, in the sense of magic and awe that breathes so much life into my everyday. But of course there are other deeper roots that formed for me in childhood, just as there are deep roots that formed for you too, whatever the shape of our different upbringings. Some of the roots that formed for me were good, others were not so good. The beauty of working with our dreams is that we can get to discover those roots, those beliefs about life, especially the unconscious ones, to see how they still affect our lives today. Once we've learned this, we can enhance the nutritious ones and do a little medicine on the more unhelpful or toxic ones. Dream work can help us to separate the real from the imagined. And once we've become enlightened in this way, we can use dream alchemy techniques to reshoot and create new memories and find better ways of moving forward in our life. Dream work can reveal the tiniest events, the seeds, the acorns, that grew into those deeply rooted, firm beliefs. And such is the plasticity and vulnerability of a young child's mind, eager to absorb, learn and protect itself from harm. My brother, Philip, keeps a photo prominently displayed in his house. It's of my sister Dawn and me cuddling a chimpanzee. I'm about nine, my sister is about seven, and Philip would have been about two at the time. The photo had been prominently displayed in our home while Philip was small, and for many years he believed he was the chimpanzee. Apparently, I had told him about evolution, and along the way he believed that he started life as a chimp before he evolved into a boy. We've known this story for so long that, weirdly enough, we refer to the photo as being of the three of us. During my visit to the UK, we decided to reshoot the photo with Philip in place of the chimpanzee. It was hysterically challenging trying to recreate the same expressions on our faces, and I wish someone had videotaped our efforts and captured the hilarity that led to the final result. In the original photo, Dawn and I are in our best matching clothes, so it must have been a big day out, but where were we? I knew the photo well, but I didn't remember where it had been taken. I imagined we were at a zoo, but our family didn't really do big outings to places like zoos. 
My sister remembers standing in front of a painted screen on a pier at the beach to have the photo taken. It turned out that she was right, for we found Clarence Pier, Southsea, written on the back. Memories of the same event can differ, be imaginary, or, in Philip's case, be totally and wonderfully surreal. A knitting yarn. Travel back with me in time to late 2010, when I was anticipating the birth of my first grandchild, a girl due in the new year. We were all getting very excited. My daughter Rowan and her husband Michael were renovating, painting, building the nest and researching children's names by consulting a book that contained a thousand and one names for children. And I bought some wool and knitting needles. It had been 30 years since I'd knit anything and that was a baby cardigan for Rowan. But they say it's like riding a bike you never forget. January is hot in Brisbane, so I was knitting a few sizes up so the baby could be warm in the chill of Brisbane's winter that was to come. It's tradition, I told Rowan. You have to knit for a new baby, even when you live in the subtropics. It's in the bones. I remembered being about four years old, sitting with my mother listening to the wireless while she clickety-clacked her way through her afternoon knitting. We had a special arrangement. If I was quiet while she listened to Woman's Hour, she would be quiet for Listen with Mother. She must have pitched it well. Listen with Mother was a ten-minute show. Woman's Hour was an hour. I kept the bargain. I was very quiet. I said nothing. I found some knitting needles and sat beside her, playing at knitting. Clickety-clack, clackety-click, clickety-clack, until the noise became too much for her and she decided it would be much quieter if she taught me how to actually knit. And so we began. I knitted a square, then a doll's scarf, graduating to tea cosies, hats, mittens without thumbs, mittens with thumbs, gloves, and so on and so forth. There was always a knitting project on the go for English girls of my era. Icelandic jumpers with intricate patterns and finally lacy baby clothes for my first baby. And then it all stopped for 30 years. My son Ewan missed out on his knitted cardi when he was born the year after Rowan. There had been no time to sit, let alone knit. And now here I was shaping the shoulders on the back of my granddaughter's little jumper, working rows upon rows of nicely tensioned stitches trailing from my fingers as if I'd been doing this all my life. The things we learn as children, consciously and unconsciously, anchor deep. We so often discover this when we explore our dreams and identify beliefs and experiences stretching way back to childhood that still influence the way we go about our lives. It's tradition, you see. You have to knit for a new baby, even when you live in the subtropics. It's in the bones. Silent Voices You'll live to regret it if you don't try. It's too risky. A change is good. You'll lose everything you've worked for. It's everything you've ever worked for. Better to be safe than sorry. You'll get hurt again. You'll be happy. Opportunities like this come once in a lifetime. 
Well, it looks too good to be true. You'll blossom. You'll fail. Listen to your heart. Think it through. These are the voices we know about, the voices we take into account as we make our decisions, all the while overlooking the far more powerful voices silently whispering deeply in our unconscious mind. You've been there, I'm sure. You've thought something through, weighed all the pros and cons, made your final decision. Then either you failed to act on it, or you've taken the other option, the path you had rejected. What happened there? Your unconscious mind took charge. Now, that would be fine if your unconscious mind was wise, and sometimes it is. There are wonderful times when your intuition nudges you to take a leap of faith that seems quite contrary to your carefully thought out plan and it works out brilliantly. And there are other wonderful times when you act as if you were being guided by a divine power, choosing quite a different path from the one you had just decided upon, a path that turns out to be life-changing in a very positive way. But... There are other, many times, when your unconscious mind is not so wise. When fear and limiting beliefs take the driver's seat and swerve you away from your best laid plans and intentions. Like your conscious voices, your unconscious voices are the voices of your experiences, beliefs, the voices of society, your parents and teachers, the voices that have influenced you. However, unlike your conscious voices, you have lost touch with these unconscious voices. Some may be the shadow side of your being, the aspects of yourself that you repress. Others may be voices too distressed or too hurt to bear, voices you've blocked from conscious memory. Repressed voices may include those that reinforce your self-esteem, intelligence and courage. You may have shut away these voices because they feel too confrontational. And still other unconscious voices may be expressions of your spiritual being, your your bigger, wiser self awaiting reconnection. Since these unconscious voices can drive you so powerfully, it makes sense to get to know and understand them, to negotiate with them, to heal their pain, to discover their treasure. So... How can you do this? Again, you you meet the unconscious voices in your dreams. These are the voices of your dream characters and they are the voices of the other elements in your dreams. These elements might include the landscape. What might a desert say to you if you listen carefully? The weather. What does thunder express? The buildings. If this dream house could speak, what would it say? And or any animals that show up in your dreams. One of the most insightful and healing dream alchemy practices you can do is to imagine the key people in your dream and the dream symbols are seated around a table talking to each other. The best way to do this is to use your keyboard or a piece of paper and pen and list the characters and symbols on the left hand side like a, like a movie script. And then, without too much thought, write down their conversation. You may feel like you're imagining their conversation, making it up, being playful with it, and you are. (laughs) However, that very imagining is revealing 
the unconscious voices within you. Some voices just need to be heard and acknowledged. You may discover a voice with a grudge, a hurt or a grief. And yet, once you have acknowledged this, it dissipates. It has let go. It has lost its unconscious power over you. Some voices may need more soothing, however, more healing. You may find that your imaginary talk evolves into group therapy. In this, all of your dream characters and symbols may find a new perspective, overcome conflict and find peaceful resolution. As your unconscious voices talk it out on paper, you'll feel the shift as any inner conflict begins to resolve. You may feel emotional release, you may cry, you may laugh, you may suddenly feel light. You will notice spontaneous clarity and a growing sense of peace. So the next time you're curious about why things don't seem to turn out quite right for you, or why you find it difficult to make decisions, or why you seem to sabotage your best intentions, line up your dream characters for a group therapy session and listen to what they have to say. Dancing yin to yang. In night dreams, I am the most spectacular dancer, always harmoniously partnered, cheek to cheek, heart to heart, soul to soul. Our weightless dances defy the gravity and clumsiness of waking life as we move as one into every dimension of space until the dance ends and I wake up still smiling from the touch of the light fantastic. And from each dream dance, a great lesson is learned. My earliest dance lessons came from my father as he waltzed me around the lounge room, my little feet perched upon his big dependable shoes. By the time I was seven, I had decided my life's mission was to be a ballet dancer. On being told I'd probably be too tall, I thought I could be a choreographer. Either way, no money for ballet lessons soon buried that plan. Prancing and pirouetting around the bedroom did nothing to enhance my future career prospects. Besides, I was a not-need child. As a young teenager, I took up yoga and learned the art of freestyle dance instead. I have since learned that dance lessons fade into insignificance, insignificance alongside the lessons of dancing. Step with me into my dancing dreams to see why. I once dream danced with someone I knew from waking life. It was a kind of reversal of my father's waltz routine. In this dream dance, the man placed his feet on mine and we waltzed the perfect waltz. The strangeness of the dream was that instead of me dancing his balancing feet through the steps, he was in control of the dance. He was the one calling the tune. He was dancing me as he stood firmly and fully on my toes. On waking, I realised that this man had indeed in waking life called the steps. He had often trodden on my toes, but I had not recognised this, and so the dream dance had been perfect for my learning at that time. Life is always in harmony and balance, even when that doesn't seem to be the case. 
What we need to learn about ourselves is reflected in our world. I needed to learn about issues of control and being controlled, of restriction and freedom, through the delirious dance of the trodden toes. We danced to the pendulum of extremes until the calmness of the middle path stilled the motion and the dance came to its natural end. People in our dreams are not themselves, but aspects of our own selves. So my treading toes dream partner was a part of myself that danced the tune of conditioned restriction and lovingly taught the lesson of breaking free. He was my outer world, my yang. I was his inner world, his yin. We danced cheek to cheek, yin to yang, in search of the still calm point between us. Think of the yin-yang symbol, for all the world looking like two tadpoles nestled into each other, top to tail, <laughs> each complete with an eye at the rounded end of the head. Or perhaps the symbol is more of a sacred 69. One side is black with a white eye, while the other side is white with a black eye. One is yin, one is yang. They are, extreme op- they are extremes, opposites huddled together in balance. As you trace the black of one tadpole from the thinness of its tail to the abundance of its head, you see the white of the eye. What this means is that as we approach an extreme in our attitude or being, the extreme being represented by the abundance of colour, a seed of the opposite nature appears. At the extreme swing of the pendulum, an excess of yang births the return swing of the yin. By the time the pendulum reaches its yin extreme, the seed of a new yang birth springs into being. In swing style, yin and yang dance the great pendulum arcs that ultimately deliver the mutual destiny of the middle path. In another dream of years past, (laughs) I tangoed across the tiles leaning back so far in the arms of my dream partner that my body was suspended horizontal to the floor. I momentarily hovered only a few centimetres above the ground until I was lightly whisked and whirled back into the next staccato tango pose. The lesson from this dream dance was to find the balance between one extreme of being too flexible, too laid back, and the other extreme of expecting too much from myself by overexerting myself. One dream dance had me cartwheeling face to face, hand to hand, feet to feet with my tumbling dream partner. Childish joy, <laughs> upside down, right side up, round and round, dizzying, we roller coasted our cartwheel harmony until my partner finally let go and I finished in standing pose, one hand outstretched, ready for my next dance partner to continue my journey. And so the great lesson of the cycles of life, the ups and downs, the rounds and rounds, the repetitions, the recurring dreams, and the final achieving of the still point was energetically clothed as a dream dance. There I stood in the quiet moment between one cycle of life and the next, between one lesson completed and another about to start, between one dance partner and the next. Nipple worms and radio experts. 
I was on a radio breakfast show interpreting dreams when a caller by the name of Kerry relayed the following dream of hers. I dreamed that a two-inch worm wriggled out of my nipple, she said. Parasites seemed to be the order of the day, for I had just helped one of the radio presenters understand her dream of picking lice from a sports star's hair. Lice and worms, nice subjects to discuss over breakfast. Dream interpretation on breakfast radio has to be quick, punchy, entertaining and light-hearted, while also delivering something insightful and meaningful about each dream. It should also impart, between the lines, a dream interpretation tip or two to the listeners. The callers don't have the luxury of describing a whole dream, so it's often down to the basics, like Kerry's worm wriggling out from her nipple. Oh, but we did have a little more information. The worm was two inches long. Every part of a dream is meaningful and it's deeply rewarding to explore and interpret every detail. But for those without the luxury of a lot of time and for radio, there's a lot of magic to be gained by reducing a dream down to one or two basic sentences that give the gist and highlight the weirdest of its dream symbols. If you're very busy, if the pace of your life is more breakfast show, more grazing bites than navel gazing, jot down your dreams using the same words that you'd use if you were phoning a radio station and the producer told you to describe your dream in no more than a couple of sentences. At least you'll have something written in your dream journal, some record of dreams that would otherwise disappear into the rush hour ether and you can get some good insights working with these basic bottom lines. Interpreting dreams is not dream dictionary work. In other words, there's no universal meaning for worm or nipple. It's more meaningful to look at how the symbols in a dream interact than to look at them in isolation. Whenever someone describes a dream, I empty my mind and just listen. As the dreamer paints the picture of the dream, I keep an open mind, observing how the elements interact, how the drama unfolds, how the dreamer expresses the dream. What do you see when you put nipple and worm in the same sentence? What does the interaction of these two symbols conjure up for you? In the early 1970s, when I lived as a student in Glasgow, Scotland, I enjoyed skipping the occasional university lecturer to relax and putter around my kitchen while listening to BBC Radio Scotland. I liked the afternoon play readings and the segments where they had experts in the studio answering callers' questions. The experts always came in panels of three and they would decide amongst themselves who would answer each caller's question. Over to you, Jack, one expert would say, after giving a brief opinion of his own. I imagined the panel of three experts sitting there in the studio, reference books on the table in front of them, two of them rapidly thumbing pages, checking facts and searching for answers, while the third held forth with a wordy introduction. Did my imagining manifest my many years of being an expert on radio? Probably. I was first interviewed on radio when I was 22, and it's been part of my life on and off ever since. But there's no sitting in the studio with a reference book or even with a laptop. 
Mostly these days there's no sitting in the studio. When I do these shows, I'm usually at home, on the phone, and I ask not to be told anything about the dreams before we go live to air. This keeps everything in the moment. Indeed, being a radio expert has taught me the clarity of being in the moment. I use the same approach for working with long, detailed dreams. Sometimes I spent an hour on one dream, as is often the case on The Dream Show with Jane Theresa Anderson, where I chat luxuriously with guests about a single dream. So here we are at the bottom line of this story. What does Kerry's dream about a worm wriggling out from her nipple mean? There's a tension at work here. A nipple is designed to deliver milk, to nourish and nurture. A worm that has been living inside the body is probably a parasite, feeding on the person's energy, ultimately depriving the person of energy and nourishment. Kerry's dream shows a tension around nurturing. Something's been draining her of her energy. Something that should be nourishing and nurturing for Kerry has, in fact, been potentially draining her reserves. The good news is that Kerry's dream captures the moment where the worm leaves her body. As we've learned in this book, every dream reflects the 24 to 48 hours prior. So Kerry most probably got something off her chest about what was draining her instead of nourishing and fulfilling her. And since the worm was two inches long, this draining has most likely been going on for two years. Of course, we'd really need to look into the details of Kerry's dream to be precise and gain deeper insight. But as a starting point for Kerry and the radio listeners, and as a starting point for busy people like you, perhaps, bite-sized dream interpretation is good breakfast food for thought. Next chapter, Pear Blossom, Purus. The story of the book and the pear tree had followed me to Australia, or I had followed it. Turnbury Road. I bought a Kimmy doll, emailed a friend, from a bookshop. Look! I clicked the attachment on my iPhone, wondering what a Kimmy doll was. Michael and I were in the car on our way to meet friends for coffee, so I didn't read the full story until later, but there she was, a delicately painted wooden oriental doll. A memory stirred, turning in its deep sleep, drifting back beyond the veil as the practicalities of finding a parking space and getting to the coffee shop took precedence. Hello, we cried out to our friends, bestowing them with hugs and kisses before finding the best table under a glorious, heavily purple-blossomed jacaranda tree at the art gallery coffee shop. We ordered our coffee, arranging our bags and selves, settling back to begin our conversation. Ah, oh, before I forget, said my friend, delving into a handbag, I bought this little doll for your lovely granddaughter. Would you give it to her next time you visit? It was a little painted wooden oriental doll, more Thai-looking than the Japanese-influenced Kimi doll and wearing a tiny necklace of beads. Still, the similarity between this doll and the Kimi doll and the synchronicity that had just presented itself struck a nameless chord. A memory stirred and faded once more. Now, I must make this clear. I don't collect dolls. There are no dolls of any kind in my house. 
I don't have a special personal or professional interest in dolls. Yet suddenly, within less than an hour, two friends showed me two similar dolls. Later in the afternoon, I pondered what my two friends have in common. And what immediately sprang to mind is that they've both travelled overseas a lot during the last few years. The Thai doll was probably brought during my second friend's recent trip to Singapore. In terms of my first friend, I learned when I read her email that she'd been attracted to the Kimi doll because she reminded her of an inspirational Japanese wise woman she had met on her last trip to Bali. If the synchronicity was with travel, I couldn't yet see the resonance in my life. I bookmarked the observation and let it be. Much later in the day, the memory awakened fully. The Kimi doll reminded me of two little wooden Kokeshi dolls of a, a Japanese pen pal had sent me when I was a young teenager. The Kokeshis were round, about six centimetres in diameter, delicately painted and varnished, and they sat like twins on a varnished black wooden tile, a prized possession. But what had happened to them? Ah, oh, there they were again, emerging from my memory, now gracing the windowsill of the Glasgow basement flat where I lived in my final undergraduate year at the University of Glasgow. I have indeed travelled a long way since those days, <laughs> but this doll synchronicity presented itself when I was flowing with the writing of this book, and the memory of my Kokeshi dolls brought me back to the story of the pear tree. It was 1974 to 75 and I was 19 or 20, living in the basement flat of my professor's iconic sandstone house on Turnbury Road, Glasgow. I mention the name of the road because I notice the berry <laughs> in Turnbury flows with my flowery tail and the turn in Turnbury marks a turning point in time. As usual, I had spent the summer holidays at my parents' house in Hampshire on the south coast of England, working a holiday job there, as students do. I returned to Glasgow in time to find a place to live for the start of my final year. This would be a year focused entirely on neurodevelopmental biology. I had rented a room in the shared flat and realised within a couple of days that this was a mistake. Something fishy was going on in that flat and I didn't want to be associated with it. I packed my bags and left. I happened to have my bags with me later that day when I went to my introductory meeting with Professor Newth to talk about my year of study ahead. He asked about my bags and when he realised I was looking for somewhere to stay, he mentioned his empty basement flat. He said he'd ask his wife, a dragon, he told me, how she would feel about me staying there for the year. There was no dragon, of course. His wife was kind and soft, and before I knew it, I was living in their basement flat all by myself, which was something I cherished, <laughs> with access to their walled back garden, which was dominated by an elegant old pear tree. Professor Newth and his wife refused to take rent, and I never understood why I was so blessed, but I was, and I relished that year. The flat had some lovable oddities, the bath was in my kitchen, under a lid that served as a kitchen bench. A kitchen bench the size of a big old bath was a luxury. 
It was there that I used to enjoy chopping and preparing food on those days when I took time off from lectures and puttered and cooked while listening to BBC Radio Scotland. There was a slightly musty smell throughout the flat, which I loved because it reminded me of being at my grandmother's nurturing old world home. A small electric bar heater was my only source of heating and may even have been the death of me had the smell of burning pillow not pierced my dreams early one morning. Apparently I had tossed my pillow out of bed and it had landed on the bar heater. Fortunately there was a plumbed sink in my bedroom and I grabbed the end of the pillow that was not roaring in flames and got it to the sink just in time. When I graduated and was packing to leave, one of Professor Newth's daughters gave me a congratulations card. It featured a depiction of a phoenix rising from the ashes. She said she felt it was fitting at such a time of change. It was the first time I'd encountered the story of the phoenix and I took it to heart. Little did they know, given that flaming pillow, how close to home the rising from the ashes theme actually was. It was Professor Newth who invited me upstairs on a couple of Sunday mornings for intelligent chat and introduced me to gin and tonic and to olives and to the word preprandial. He told me the pear tree in the garden, the one I looked out to from my window seat, was famous as it had been featured in a novel. I've forgotten the details now, but the author was a woman who either lived in the house or stayed there. I think the novel was written in the early 20th century and based in Victorian times. Long ago I knew the author's name and the title of the book. That's why I was stunned when I more recently came across the book while idly looking through a table of hardbacks in a second-hand bookshop in a small country town. The name of the town was Bangalow and it was near Byron Bay, New South Wales, Australia. This happened in the mid-1980s, shortly after my first husband, Douglas, and I had moved to this continent. I bought the book, read it, I don't know where it is now. The story of the book and the pear tree had followed me to Australia, or I had followed it. A collared dove nested in that pear tree, and I used to love sitting in the window seat, simply listening to its distinctive coo. It was calling but to what I didn't know. In any event, I found the sound meditative, reassuring. The Kokeshi dolls had sat on the windowsill at that window seat. Being a basement flat in a well-to-do inner suburb, there were bars at the window, so in summer I could leave the windows open when I was out. One day I came home and the Kokeshi dolls were gone, along with a few other items within hand's reach through the bars of the window. The Eggs of Orkney. The Kokeshi dolls travelled, the pear tree book travelled, and my final year at university was coming to an end. I loved Scotland, and major travel wasn't really on my agenda. The following year I visited the Orkney Islands, a small archipelago off the north coast of Scotland, and as the ship approached the harbour, I had the strangest feeling of homecoming. I have never understood why. Several years later, when I was pregnant with my first child, my daughter Rowan, we returned to Orkney. 
I collected egg-shaped pebbles from a beach and placed them in a nest-shaped orkney basket, which is a distinctive type of weaving. I still have that nest of eggs. I've taken it everywhere I have lived. There are a few extra eggs now, pebbles collected by my children over the years, which they popped into the nest without my knowing. I'm sure some laws have been broken. The removal of pebbles from the beach and the import of the woven basket into Australia for starters, but somewhere at heart a universal law is in motion and the basket of eggs and I are following it. The elements of the story are significant. The eggs are derived from a spiritual home. Then we have the nest, the phoenix, the collared dove, the calling and the writing. Ah, hmm, I've not explained about the writing. As I wrote that paragraph, Rowan texted me a picture of my grandson, Sandy, holding up his bucket of chocolate eggs after the Easter bunny visited their garden yesterday. Rowan knows I'm writing this book, but she doesn't know what it's about. Sandy beams out at me over his nest of collected eggs. After university, I wondered quite dreamily whether moving to Orkney might be a good plan. Well, let's just say I knew it wasn't a good plan, but it had the feeling of a calling and homecoming to it. So I played with the vision of that happening, though the practicalities eluded me. I could picture myself living in an Orkney Stonecroft cottage, living a relatively self-sufficient lifestyle with a windmill for power and growing a kitchen garden. For work, I pictured writing a community newsletter. Yes, I know, it seemed as odd and financially non-viable back then as it is now, does now, but it seemed right. Fortunately, people reminded me that I had only seen Orkney in the summer and that the winters were long and bleak, perhaps even dire. In any case, my intuition told me that Orkney was a small island and that sometime in the future I would be writing some kind of community newsletter for a much bigger island. Or maybe, I thought, the world is a kind of large island, really. In any event, in time, that's what I've ended up doing. The community newsletter is my blog, along with its predecessors, the various incarnations of emailed newsletters. And yes, the online world is indeed a very large island, the community much bigger than, but still inclusive of, such far-flung small islands as Orkney. I laid the Orkney lifestyle picture to one side, did a postgraduate teacher training year, then went to London to do a PhD at the National Institute for Medical Research at Mill Hill. After three months, I knew laboratory research was not for me, though I found the subject of tracing how regenerating optic nerve fibres reconnect with the brain in goldfish and frogs fascinating. I returned to Glasgow and within a few days I had a job sorting at Dead Birds, <laughs> the taxidermy department in the University Zoology Museum. Writing this I smile as I didn't realise the symbolism of the dead birds at the time. Fortunately, after only a couple of weeks, I was headhunted in a bit of a cloak and dagger kind of way for a job in the Hunteria Museum, also at the University of Glasgow. Before I knew it, I was heading a small team known as the Travelling Exhibition Unit, with a brief to create Scotland's first travelling natural history exhibitions. 
It was a challenging job because the natural history curators didn't want their items to travel. (laughs) So we had to be creative, make plaster casts and models and use art and storytelling to get the concepts across. These were the years just before museums were expanding the outreach of their exhibitions and it was exciting to see that era begin to develop. We put four good shows on the road. My job description included coming up with the ideas, doing the writing, pamphlets, labels, catalogues, educational material, press releases, and talking up our exhibitions on the radio. I was thrown in the deep end. And yet, when I look back, that job was a key step for me. It gave me courage and helped me develop my professional writing skills. And the radio and media media work have been an ongoing part of my life ever since. The day I got a call from the Times of London about an exhibition we'd created called Mermaids, Myths and Monsters, I began to get the hang of how the media really worked. Cataloguing dead birds, or operating on goldfish and frogs for research purposes during my first term of my PhD studies in London, were behind me. I had begun writing creatively about subjects the public and the media embraced. And if there were birds and fish in my life, they were alive and thriving. Toward the end of my two years in that job, I was called into a meeting with my colleagues. Some stereoscopic glass negatives from an Antarctic expedition had been unearthed in the basement. No one knew anything about them and we were asked if any of us might be interested in researching them. I don't know why I said yes, but it must have been because I was intrigued. I looked at the negatives, which contained images of plenty of birds, fish and seals. The Scottish National Antarctic Expedition of 1902-04, led by Robert Bruce, was a scientific expedition with a natural history focus, so it turned out that it suited the travelling exhibition unit. We made it our first photographic exhibition. The expedition sailed in the Scotia and was trapped in ice at one stage. One of the photographs we printed was one of the crew dressed in full kilt playing bagpipes to a penguin that seemed utterly absorbed in the music. However, if you look closely, (laughs) it was held in thrall by a string tied to the piper's foot. We used that photo as our exhibition poster and had a large copy printed to mark the entrance to the exhibition. Some 15 or so years later, I was visiting Phillip Island, a small island off the Victorian south coast of Australia. I was there with friends to see the fairy penguins roll in on the evening waves and waddle up to their burrows on the shore. Once the fairy penguins were snuggled up for the night, we walked through the small museum that connected the shore to the road. Well, I had to sit down and recover when we turned the corner and there on the wall right in front of me was a huge print of my Scottish piper heralding the penguin. It was exactly the same photograph. I didn't know it at the time, but within two or three years, I would have the contract to write my first book, Sleep On It. When I had gone to Phillip Island, writing a book was not something I was thinking about. Looking back now, I was definitely sleeping on something, and it felt as if something else was trying to awaken me. 
It was during my research for that Scottish National Antarctic Expedition that a Glasgow academic publisher approached me and asked me to write a coffee table book on the subject. I still cannot believe that I turned down the offer. I was full of doubt. Even though I had created much magic in my role as the leader of the travelling exhibition unit, I didn't think I was up to writing a book on one of the exhibitions we had staged. As I've noted in an earlier chapter, through the years I've seen the book theme or author theme pursue me in synchronicity, in story and in opportunity. And as I write these words now, I also see entwined the multiple and recurring themes of birds, flowers and trees calling for the voice on the page. Lens flare or divine light? It's lens flare, says the scientist. It's synchronicity, says the mystic. It's divine, says the shaman. It's alchemy, says the dream alchemist. It belongs in the fifth chapter, says the author. Let's see what my dreams make of this, says the dream analyst. So in the book here, I've got a photograph of me, which I go on to describe. So the chapter begins with that photograph, and I'll just tell you a little bit of it. It's, um, it's me holding my basket of Orkney eggs, and there's a, a shaft of light shining right into the basket. So I'll continue with reading the book. That's me, scientist, mystic, shaman, dream alchemist, author, and dream analyst, though probably not in that order. And that's me in the picture above, taken by a Samsung smartphone under the lemon tree in our Brisbane back garden in 2016. But what is the light that found its way into the shot? It's the backstory that sends tingles up the spine, whatever the source of light. That's why the photographer, Karen MacDonald, leapt back in shock when she looked at the image moments after taking the picture. When Karen and her business partner, Cordelia Vecchio, arrived at my house for the photo shoot, I invited them in to scout the place for locations and props and began by showing them my basket of eggs, thinking they'd make an interesting photo. I had stories to tell about those stone eggs and thought a photo or two to illustrate them would come in handy. As mentioned earlier, I collected the egg-shaped pebbles several decades ago when I was pregnant with my first child, my daughter Rowan. We were holidaying in the Orkney Islands and I wanted to take something of Orkney home with me. I wanted more than a memento. I wanted a, a totem of sorts, a connection to the magical energy I had found and felt around the Orkneys from the very first time I had visited the place a few years before. I shared more of this story earlier in this book. I am not a hoarder or a great collector, but do tend to keep some mementos of places I've been and significant events in my life. I love being surrounded by beautiful things, but I live quite lightly. I have lived on four continents and moved house more times than I can count, but those pebble eggs are still with me and always placed in a prominent spot in my home. How about these as a prop, I said to Cordelia. They're stone eggs from Orkney and the basket they're in is an Orkney basket, a weave specific to those islands. Well, Karen's ancestors are from Orkney, said Cordelia. Now, for Cordelia to know this about Karen shows how important the connection is to Karen. It's a story she tells, something her close friends know about her. 
Here we were in Australia, about as far away from Orkney as you can get, talking about a group of islands with a current population of around 20,000 people. My family history traces back to the 1700s in Orkney, added Karen. What was the population back in 1765 when Karen's ancestor, John Old Tufter Flett, lived in the ancient capital of Bursay? Surely much less than 20,000 individuals. And what were the chances of Karen discovering that I treasure something that connects to something she treasures about her family? Well, I knew Karen from yoga, and one evening she and I were able to talk a little bit more at a party. She was excited to tell me that she was reading a book by Michael Newton about past lives, and wondered how I saw dreams fitting into that paradigm. I told her that a good friend of mine, whose name is also Karen, albeit spelt differently, had trained at the Newton Institute, which Michael Newton had founded. Karen was working to my Karen was working with him to write a follow-up book to the one this Karen was reading. Not only that, but my Karen's husband was currently staying with us as a house guest. As well, she had asked me to volunteer to be regressed into a past life to build her experience while she was training. And in addition, I had already included the story of that regression in the first draft of this book, which we'll come to at the end of the book. And yes, okay, my maiden name is Newton, (laughs) but there's no family connection that I know of. So when Karen, the photographer, looked at my Orkney basket of stone eggs and completed, contemplated my story about my feelings of magical connection with the Orkney and her family history connecting back to the islands and put it together with her interest in past lives, she got goosebumps. Can you imagine, then, how she felt when she looked at that photo and saw something she hadn't seen down the lens when she took the shot? Can you imagine how I felt when I saw the photo, as I had just finished writing about the synchronicities I had experienced around Orkney and my writing career for the first draft of this book? For my part, what was was happening when the picture was taken? Well, Karen had taken two shots of me holding the basket. In one, I was looking into the smartphone camera. The other photo is the one we're talking about here. Oh, sorry, the other photo, (laughs) yeah, is the one we're talking about here. The mystery light is in both. In this one, the one in the book, I was directed to look up to my left. There was a plane flying very high in the sky, so I watched that, all silvery sparkles in the sunlight. In both shots, unbeknown to Karen, I was focusing on offering her the basket of eggs, energetically speaking, as an Orkney connection to whatever she needed in that moment. So when I saw the light beam in the photograph, I was suitably moved by it. That moment was so meaningful to me, though, that although I'm also a scientist, I was more consumed by a burst of deeper insight into the significance of my basket of eggs and its place in this book, than by the physics of light in the photo. Karen and Cordelia, being experienced photographers, perceived the light as orbs, not lens flare. In any event, synchronicity was at play that day. And that night, my dreams worked at processing these experiences and the questions that had arisen by their happenstance. 
One of my dream images was a pear tree in full blossom, stunningly beautiful. I was admiring the tree when I looked through it to see a string of twinkling fairy lights looped across the window of the house behind the tree. Now, I've always called them fairy lights, but you may know them by a different name. They're tiny party lights, often strung in trees or around balconies and verandas. The rest of my dream was enlightening on all levels, but this one image is enough for now. The photo had been taken under a lemon tree in our Brisbane back garden. But as you'll remember, there was a famous pear tree in my back garden in Glasgow in 1974-75. That pear tree and the synchronicities around it linked in with my writing career and the Orkney basket significantly shaping my understanding of life and its many mysteries. No wonder then that a pear tree made its way into my dream. How beautifully my dreamy mind represented the light as a blend of science and magic, a string of electric lights known as, and dancing as, fairy lights. But what is more beautiful than nature itself? What can beat a pear tree in full blossom on a spring day? Or a lemon tree to shade a basket of pebbles from an Orkney beach? Or a shaft of sunlight glinting into a smartphone lens and causing lens flare that looks like fairy lights or angel orbs? And what of the beauty we intuit but cannot see? The beauty that lies behind nature? The fairy lights behind the pear tree? the interconnection of all people and all things, the spiritual nature of our being, the meaningful but sometimes mysterious pattern behind it all. The hand of the divine had shifted the smartphone smartphone, ever so slightly so that the ray of sunlight would bounce just so and cause the ray of light to appear in the picture and jolt new awareness into me, Karen, Cordelia, and perhaps now, for you? When is lens flare just lens flare? And when is it so much more? That's the end of part three. (laughs) So thank you for listening to part three of Bird of Paradise. The next instalment, part four, will be released as episode 269 of The Dream Show which is due out on the 18th of May, 2023, if you're listening to this in real time. And remember, you can buy the paperback or digital version of Bird of Paradise wherever you usually buy your books, or look under Books on the menu on my website at janeteresa.com. That's Teresa without an H. janeteresa.com is also where you can go to discover my other books and courses, as well as to consult me privately. And janeteresa.com is also where you can go to listen back through all episodes of The Dream Show. And if you're keen to listen to guests exploring their dreams with me, go to episode 265 and work back from there. Thank you for listening to yet another episode of The Dream Show. I'm Jane Teresa Anderson. <laughs>